Hello, and welcome to this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. If this message encourages you, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can give online securely at calvaryabq.org. As we continue our series, Technicolor Joy, we learn that spiritual thorns that deflate joy can also threaten our Christian experience. In the message, Has Your Joy Sprung a Leak? Skip considers some simple principles that firm up our life journey and keep the joy of the Lord intact. Please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3 as he begins. Lord, we intentionally now just push everything aside and ask you to um, do what you're so good at. And that is to convince us of how loved we are by you and areas that you are trying to deal with and carry us along through so that we can be more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How thankful we are that you are so committed to our growth, to our maturity, and that you walk with us every day and give us so many blessings, one of which is here right now, the freedom we enjoy in this country to open up the Scriptures and the freedom to worship You. So speak, Lord, Your servants are hearing. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know if you have heard the name Billy Sunday or if you know much about who he was. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player. He was a center fielder for Chicago who got converted and became an evangelist. And he was a fiery evangelist, so much so that when he would speak, people would remark on the joy and enthusiasm that emanated from Billy Sunday. Well, he spoke a lot on the subject of joy. One of the things he said is, don't look as if your Christianity hurts you. Isn't that good? Too many people say, I'm a Christian. They wince their way through life. He also said, the trouble with many people is that they have just enough religion to make them miserable. But my favorite quote by Billy Sunday on the subject of joy is this. If you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. My question to you this morning is, Have you sprung a leak? Have you sprung a leak in in joy? Has your joy sprung a leak? There are a number of things in life that can challenge anybody's joy. Circumstances can. People can. Everyday problems can. Overwork, sin, doubt, disease, chronic pain. Those are just a few things that can challenge our joy. However... If those things steal your joy, you got a problem. And the biggest problem is Paul the Apostle. You say, Skip, how do you figure that's our biggest problem? Because if those things can steal your joy, you've got an apostle. You've got someone telling you to be joyful who has every reason not to be joyful. Now, we already know from studying this book that Paul writes this from a jail cell. He does not know if the verdict's going to be live or die. But 
Before we even read this text, let me remind you of something else Paul wrote. This is 2 Corinthians. It's a paragraph that he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to Paul describing his Christian background up to this point. He said, I have worked harder. I have been put in jail more often. I have been whipped times without number, faced death again and again, five different times. The Jews gave me 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled many weary miles. I have faced danger from flooded rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on stormy seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be Christians, but are not. I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Often I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. Often I have shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of how the churches are getting along. So how are you doing? I mean, with this guy's background, and yet Paul the Apostle felt he was so anchored to Jesus Christ, so trusting in Jesus for his future that he felt it was no way he could not have joy. He, he couldn't help but be joyful. And that has been a key note in this letter up to this point. We've noted that. I want you to note it one more time. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3, and just notice this. This prisoner in jail, facing death possibly, verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Verse 18, chapter 1. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 16. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes? And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. In other words, if this costs me my very life and I die in the process. I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now let's skip ahead. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Okay, so if you were to go back and go through this letter and count how many times Paul uses joy or rejoice or rejoicing, you would count 14 times in all just in this letter. Now with that as our background, let's look at our verses this morning. Philippians chapter 3, and we're only going to look at three verses, 1, 2, and 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, immediately you notice that though he's talking about rejoicing, he uses some pretty strong language. Very vivid warnings. Why? I think he wants to shock them a bit. I think he wants their attention. Their joy is being threatened, and he wants to keep them safe from the things and the people that are a challenge to their joy that are possibly robbing them of joy. You know, sometimes when you give instructions to people, they've heard them before, so they're not listening. And so you, you introduce an element of shock to draw them in so they get the point. So let me give you an example. There was a principal of a school, a junior high school in Oregon. He had a problem. Some of the girls in that junior high school were wearing lipstick. They go in the, in the little girls, in the girls' room and put lipstick on, but then they would press their lips up against the mirror, leaving dozens of lip prints in the, in the restroom. So the principal kindly asked them, not to do that, instructing them why. We have to clean up every time you do that. Please don't do that. You think it helped? Uh-uh. Didn't help at all. They kept doing it. So he thought, well, i gotta get a, I got to get a little more creative. So he invited all the girls into the restroom, said, I'm going to give you a demonstration. This is how hard it is to clean the mirror. So he got all the girls in the room and said, now, girls, when you put your lip prints up there, we got to clean it every day, and here's a custodian to show you that it's not that easy of a task. Well, they're just sort of licking their little clicks talking and not really paying attention and giggling. So he says, okay, I'm going to demonstrate. So he tells the custodian to demonstrate cleaning the mirror in the bathroom. So the custodian gets the long-handled squeegee, dips it in the toilet, scrubs the marks off and squeegees it off. Since that day, there have been no more lip prints on the mirrors in the girls' restroom. He's a pretty smart guy, isn't he? That little shock value changed everything. Well, so Paul does the same thing in these three verses, especially in verse 2. What I want to show you here are three defenses that will stop Leaking joy. Three defenses that will stop, that will help you against your joy leaking out. First of all, joy must be guarded. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, let me just say that. Just because Paul says finally here doesn't mean he's done. He's got a whole half a book left. So he's a preacher. So when he says finally, doesn't mean finally. It means I, I have a whole second half of the book to go. So it doesn't mean he's lying. It just means that the word translated here should probably have been translated more appropriately, furthermore, or also, or on another vein. That's what the word can mean. It's translated here finally. He's going to use this word again in chapter 4, verse 8. When he does it that time, he is closing the letter down. But here finally means furthermore. So furthermore, or also, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Those words from anybody else would sound very shallow. But when they come from the guy who experienced all that we found out that he experienced, they are very profound words. 
Rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's given them a command. In fact, it's in it's what's called the present active indicative, which would be translated this way. Go on constantly rejoicing or be continually rejoicing. Now, when I discovered that that's what that wording means, that tells me something about joy. Number one, it tells me that joy has much less to do with what's going on around you and much more to do with what's going on inside you. That no matter what's going on around you, you can respond to that with joy. Second thing it tells me is that it's not an automatic response. This is something that is a learned response. It's a choice that you make to make joy your outlook. How do I know that? Because by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this. Listen carefully. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. It's not automatic. I had to learn that, and I have learned it. So that is now my response. Some of you will remember when David in the Old Testament, King David was, before he was king, he was being chased by Saul, and he was very discouraged and very disraught, and he thought he was going to lose his life. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we are told, Then David encouraged himself in the Lord. So that's, that's Paul. Paul said, I will rejoice, and he goes, Rejoice in the Lord. You see, joy was Paul's outlook because Jesus was Paul's uplook. Speaking of that, look at the phrase. Finally, my brethren, he didn't say rejoice, period. He says rejoice in the Lord. Why is that important? Because he's not saying rejoice in your circumstances or be dependent on people for your joy. When you rejoice in the Lord, your joy is a byproduct of of a relationship with God. Perhaps one of the reasons you don't experience joy is because you're looking for joy in all the wrong places. You're looking for something or someone else to produce it for you and in you. The way I see it, joy is a spiritual reality check. Let's see. God is still on the throne. Check. I'm a child of God. Check. All things work together for those who love God. Check. All of that produces my response of, okay then, I'm going to be joyful. So I'm not joyful because my circumstances are favorable. Oftentimes they're not favorable. And I'm not joyful because people are wonderful. Because are they always? No. Have you seen the way they drive around here? That's enough to take your joy away. I'm not joyful because I own things or sad because I don't own things. My joy is a byproduct of my relationship with the living, loving Lord of the universe. Rejoice in the Lord. That qualifies the command. Look at the next sentence of verse 1. Paul says, For me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious or burdensome or irksome or troublesome. It's not tedious, but for you, it is safe. No. Paul knows he's repeating himself. He's saying the same things to them. For me to say the same things to you, it's not tedious. He knows he's repeating himself. Living Bible puts it this way. I never get tired of telling you this, and it's good for you to hear it again and again. 
What does he mean? Well, he's already talked about joy several times. And he's not done. And he knows that people listening or reading this letter could get a little tedious. Okay, so you're reading Philippians, you're reading along, and he talks about your joy, and then a few verses later talks about joy, and a few verses later rejoice, and after a while you're going, he keeps saying that. It's getting tedious. Hearing things repeated can get tedious for some people. When I was a kid, when I was in the bratty stage of being a kid, my parents would tell me things. They would repeat themselves, especially my father. And I had that juvenile, dopey response, rolling my eyes. And I wanted to finish. I know I can actually finish your paragraph. Dad, I know exactly what you're going to say. I knew the spiel. And listening to things over and over again got a bit tedious. Well, I'm a parent now, obviously, and a grandparent, and I see things a little bit differently. I find myself repeating those sayings, and history goes on. A good instructor repeats himself. Let me say that again. Paul says, I've said this before, I'm saying it again. It's not tedious for me, and it's actually safe for you. Now, Paul isn't the only one to do this. Peter, when he writes his letter, he says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent, this body, to stir you up by reminding you. Educators have always known the value of repetition. Ask any fitness coach, any athletic coach. My brother's a golf pro, and he will tell you, you need to make that swing and make those body motions over and over again, and he will have you repeat that and repeat that so that muscle memory gets locked in. You repeat it. Even Aristotle, a couple thousand years ago, said, it's frequent repetition that produces natural tendency. So he goes, I've said it before, I'm saying it again. I don't mind saying it again. And by the way, for you, it's actually safe that I say it again and again. Why is it safe? It's safe because he knows that there are joy stealers out there. There are grace killers. There are legalistic people that attach themselves to every congregation. So joy must be guarded. But number two... Legalism must be avoided. And that's his thought. When he gets to verse 2, he says, Beware of dogs. Now, he's not speaking to mailmen who are delivering your mail with a little sign, Beware of dog. He's speaking about something different. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Notice three times he uses the word beware. Beware, beware, beware. These are warnings. Who is he warning them against? He's warning them against false teachers called Judaizers. Judaizers. Let me explain who they are. I don't even know if you've ever heard the term Judaizers. I'm not speaking about Jewish people. Judaizers were people who mixed the grace of Jesus Christ with the law of the Old Testament. And they believed you you needed both in order to be right with God. 
So when Peter, in Acts chapter 10, goes into a Gentile's house, Cornelius, and shares with him and eats a meal with him, the folks back in Jerusalem, the Judaizers, they were Jewish people, Messianic Jews, converted to Jesus Christ, trusted in Jesus, but thought, Peter, you can't do that. You can't go into a Gentile's house and have a meal with him. They're like unclean people. They got all upset. Why? Because they said, you have to come through Judaism in order to get to Christ. Paul the Apostle had the same problem. He goes on his first missionary journey. He goes into the synagogues first, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. They kick him out of the synagogues. He preaches to the Greeks in the Areopagus, at the Agora, in every city, Gentiles, non-Jews, here, respond. Well, by the time this filters back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, they're like, they're beside themselves. They throw a fit. Acts chapter 15, this is what they say, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised and keep the laws of Moses, you cannot be saved. Those were Judaizers. They attached themselves to the church. And they said the Gentiles had to submit to Jewish rules, and they opposed Paul wherever he went. So he warns them. By the way, if you're thinking, well, those days are long gone. We don't have people like that around today, do we? Are you nuts? There, there's always people who have a list of rules to keep, and you have to go through those rules to be right with God. And by the way, not much different than back then. There's been a movement, it's been popular for some time, it's called the Jewish Roots Movement. That's what apologetic teachers will call it. Jewish Roots Movement sounds beautiful. That is, let's get in touch with our Jewish roots and find out about the festivals and the prayer shawls and the Hebrew prayers and light the candles and wear the keep and blow the shofar. And, and that's cool. But what they do is a lot of times these are Gentiles, not Jewish people, who are going back to Jewish roots and believe that you have to be under the laws of the Torah in order to be right with God. And so it's dangerous. So Paul says, beware, beware, beware. Why? Because he knows that being joyful means being careful. And we learn a lot about the characteristics of these legalists just from looking at this verse. Notice, first of all, the legalists can be scavengers. That's why Paul says, beware of dogs. That's a term of contempt, by the way. You may want to try that. Go up to somebody and go, you dog. No, don't do that on second hand. It's a, it, was a ter- it was like a cuss word. The origin of the term dog in Hebrew parlance goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. It referred to a male cult prostitute. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, You shall not bring the wages of a harlot, nor the price of a dog, to the house of the Lord. Very stark language to describe a male cult prostitute. Well, as time went on, did you know that Orthodox Jews started using the term dog to refer to non-Jews? Gentiles. So Jews, Orthodox Jews, would often refer to Gentiles as dogs. Interesting that Paul decides, I'm going to throw that term back at them. These Judaizers who say that we have to keep the laws of Moses to be saved. Beware of dogs. He's saying that's who they are. Now you probably have figured out that 
the dogs he is referring to are not your groomed little pets that jump up on your lap, (laughs) that you put those goofy sweaters on and all that stuff. These were vicious, ferocious scavengers who roamed the streets. They were dangerous. They ate filth. They bred disease. And just as a dog tears and devours, so do legalists tear and devour the grace of God. So Paul says, watch out for them. Legalists can be scavengers. Beware of dogs. Second warning, beware of evil workers. That's part of their characteristic. Legalists can be evil while thinking that they're good. They think they're good, but Paul calls them evil workers. Okay, so what we have here is a play on words or a play on concept, you might say. Legalists believe that you get right with God by doing good works. I'm going to go through a ceremony and a ritual and do good. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to earn my way. And Paul says, those are evil workers. Why would he dare do that? Because when anyone ever says, I get right with God by doing good works, what they are in effect saying, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not good enough. I need to add to that some of my own goodness and righteousness to make that a completed, finished work. So I don't want you to think that I'm disparaging good works and saying, hey, you're a Christian, don't worry about being good. Of course I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that good works are a byproduct of a relationship with God. Once you come to Jesus Christ, if if you've really come to Him, if it's really authentic, and there's repentance and faith, He'll change you. There will be good works. But the good works are a byproduct of the relationship. Once they become the basis of a relationship, they are evil works. Because you are saying, I need those works in order to be right with God. One commentator writes this, There are people who do not want us to be free. They don't want us to be free before God, accepted just as we are by His grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively. They insist that all look alike, talk alike, and act alike. Without being aware, we become anxious about what others will say about us. Obsessively concerned about what others think we should do. We no longer live the good news, but anxiously try to memorize and recite the script that someone else has assigned to us. We may be secure, but we will not be free. Once in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that there are false apostles who corrupt you, listen to the words, who corrupt you from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. It's just so simple. Just trust Him. Just embrace the work He has done for you. It's so simple. And when that gets convoluted, you have legalists who think they're good, but actually, it's evil. Here's a third mark in that third beware. When he says beware of the the mutilation, I'm going to explain that. Legalists can be destructive. Now, when he's talking about mutilation, the old King James renders it concision. Beware of the concision. If you ever read that, you go, what on earth is a concision? So here it says, beware of the mutilation. Other translations say, beware of the false circumcision. So did you know that the covenant for Jews 
in ancient times of their covenant relationship with God was the outward mark of circumcision. A, a male child at eight days old was circumcised. That is, the foreskin uh, of the flesh uh, of his organ was cut off, and that was the symbol of the national relationship the Jews had with God. What was it a symbol of? The symbol was to speak of the reality that my flesh life is cut away, that my focus is on spiritual things, not on fleshly things. It spoke of a beautiful reality. But as time went on, the ritual became a formality. It just became a formality. It's not unlike baptism. For a lot of people, baptism is a formality. You know how I know this? Ask somebody, are you saved? Do you know you're going to heaven? Often they'll say, I've been baptized. Nice. That wasn't, that wasn't what I asked you. Let's go back to the question. Are you saved? I've been baptized. Great. You got wet once. Are you saved? You see what they're doing? They're equating the ritual they went through, the formality, with being saved. So they did with circumcision. Judaizers, as I mentioned, taught that circumcision was vital to salvation. Acts 15.1. Unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul says, beware of the mutilation. It's a very strong term. The term he uses here refers to the pagans cutting themselves, mutilating themselves. Uh, Flashback to 1 Kings 18, if some of you know that story, when Elijah's on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and it says they started cutting themselves for hours, dancing around, calling to their gods. Remember that? That's the mutilation. So what Paul is saying is that their circumcision is as meaningless as pagan mutilation, if there's no reality behind the ritual. So legalism does that. It mutilates the grace of God. It mutilates the work of Christ. If you were to boil all belief systems down to their irreducible minimum, I like to do that, you could could say that all religions in the world have one of two approaches. There's only two religions in the world. You've heard me say this before. See, people go, oh, there's so many different religious systems and so many beautiful examples of expression. No, there's really only two religions in the whole world. There is the religion of human achievement, and there is the religion of divine accomplishment. Every single religious system, including sects of Christianity, many of them, fall into the category of the religion of human achievement. I'm right with God because I've been baptized, and I go to church, and I've been confirmed, and I try hard, and I pray. That's what you've done. That's human achievement. Only biblical Christianity is in that second category, the religion of divine accomplishment. It's what Jesus did for you. It's His finished work on the cross. That's divine accomplishment. So joy must be guarded. Legalism must be avoided. And the third defense to leaking joy is your identity must be comprehended. Look at verse 3. It's our last verse for the day. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I'm amazed at how Paul the Apostle can take one verse and put so much in it. In one verse, 
he describes a true believer, a Christian believer. It's a synonym of what a true believer is. Verse 3 is a description, and it's a contrast. As opposed to the false religious legalists, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So what is our identity? First of all, true followers. I'm not saying we all are, or everybody here is, but if you are like Paul, and he's identifying with the Philippians, a, a, a Christian believer is a true follower. Look at what he says. For we are the circumcision. Stop there. You could translate this because it's implied. We are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Um, what he means by that is spiritually we are circumcised. We are not those who have just a meaningless outward mark. We are those who have a true inward cleansing. We are the true circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and the circumcision is that of the flesh. But he said, A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit and not by the written code. See, there's an inward reality that the outward ritual needs to speak to. It's like my ring. I have a wedding ring. I am ashamed to say it's the second one I've owned. I lost my first one in the Pacific Ocean. So I quickly went to a second-hand store and got a, another ring. But the ring itself is not as important as the relationship that I have. What if I wasn't married and I had this ring on this finger? You would look at me and you'd say, oh, he's married. But I'm not married unless I have a spouse, a wife. So the ring points to the reality of having a spouse. I do have a spouse, by the way. And so I have a ring to prove it. You may have a cross around your neck, and you may have a baptismal certificate on your wall, but do you have a Savior in your heart? That's the crux of this. We are the true circumcision. So we are true followers. We are true worshipers. Look at the next phrase. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Now, you know what that means. In the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. It's not only outward. It's not only rituals. It's real. It's authentic. Now, you will notice around here, we always do this. We always emphasize the inward as opposed to just the outward. And the reason we do that, people say, why do you do that so much? Because I'm a biblical expositor and the New Testament does that a lot. That's why. It's the inward over against the outward because anybody can go through the motions. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. Here's my Bible. I know these songs. I get together with other people who believe. I do this once a week. But the outward needs to speak to the inward. We worship God in the Spirit. So do you remember when Jesus met a Samaritan woman and he started asking her questions and talking to her. And he was getting really personal with her about her marriages and her previous love lives. And she's getting really kind of anxious about that and squiggling out of it. So she does what a lot of people do. They deflect. Let's talk about something else. And her deflection was on outward worship. She said this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. See what she's talking about? She's deflecting to the emphasis on something outward. 
It's like saying, well, we go to church here and you go to church there. So what's the right church to go to? I love how Jesus answered it. He said, woman, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, for God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It has to be authentic in and from your spirit and based upon the truth of Scripture. The question isn't, do you stand when you worship? Do you sit when you worship? Do you raise your hands when you worship? Or do you sway when you worship? The question is, do you worship? Is it real? Is it authentic? Is it you, in your spirit, in your heart, authentically worshiping God? So our identity as believers must be comprehended. We are true followers, true worshipers. Third description, we are true celebrators. He says, we worship God in the Spirit and we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now here, he loves the word rejoice, but here it would be better translated, we brag on or we boast about. We're not boasting about how good we are. We are bragging about and boasting in what Jesus Christ has done for us and his accomplishments. Now here's the dead giveaway. You can always spot a legalist this way. A legalistic person always minimizes the work of Jesus Christ and maximizes the work of man. And by the way, that's why they have no joy. Because it's always, I'm working hard to get to heaven. And if they're never sure if they've worked enough. So there's never any satisfaction. There's never any joy. There's continual shame and hope. Hope I'm doing enough. And I've got to tell you what, I've been around legalistic people have these set of rules and regulations, but then they act so proudly and smug like they've actually kept all of those rules and regulations themselves. Mark Twain said, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) Give me them any day over religious folks. The fourth thing we are, and we'll we'll close, finally, brethren, (laughs) we are true believers. We are true believers. Notice the last six words, and have no confidence in the flesh. We depend totally on Jesus Christ. Now, this is the place where we ought to just go, oh, yeah. We ought to just sigh a breath of relief. Because, you see, the humanist message is, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, son. Because God helps those who help themselves. Which, by the way, is not in the Bible. Unless you wrote it there yourself. That's the humanist message. The legalist message is, well, you got to work your way to heaven and keep the rituals and keep the ceremonies and cross your fingers. But that's not our message. Our message is Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. That's our message of the gospel. And listen, that'll bring joy back to your life. That'll bring joy back to your life. He did it all. That'll bring you joy. Because Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Abundantly. He didn't say, I have come that they might have bummer. And bummer more abundantly. I know a lot of people with abundant bummer in their life. 
come that they might have joy and have it to the full. One translation says, the skip translation, the NSV, to the max. Joy to the max. Abundant joy. Hey, let me close with this. Suppose that you get a new car and you're going on a driving vacation. You're going to Rocky Mountain National Park. So you fill your car up with gas and you're driving up. You're so happy. Your whole family's there. But you get out of town and you start noticing there are people outside of their vehicles pushing on the road. They're pushing their cars. They're pushing. That's kind of weird. So eventually you stop and get gas and one of these pushers comes up next to you while you're pumping gas going, Hi. Where are you going? You go, I'm going to Rocky Mountain National Park. And I'm driving. Yeah, I noticed that. I used to drive too. Now, we're pushing. You're going, yeah, I noticed that you're pushing. So what's up with that? And they say, well, you know, uh, we used to be like you, driving. But now we're, well, we're, we're a little more mature. And we've grown a little bit more. We know just a lot more than we did at first. So... We've discovered that it's really good to push because, well, you get good exercise, first of all, and it's good for the environment. So, you know, you ought to just get out of your car. You ought to push. And so let's just say you're dumb enough to go, okay. Uh, I'm, you, you sold me. Now that I'm smarter, I'm going to go do that. So you're out there pushing. And let's say you go on vacation with your family and you push your car all the way up those passes to Rocky Mountain National Park and back home. Now, I have a question for you. Are you joyful? Are you kidding? You are miserable. Why? Because you pushed. This is what Paul meant when he said to the Galatians, Why is it having begun in the Spirit, you are now trying to be made perfect by the flesh? Or with our illustration in mind, you might put it this way. Once you had a full tank of gas in the Spirit, why are you trying to push your way through life? It's like people get saved, there's a joy in the Lord, then they read some stupid book or listen to some lame teacher, and it's like, here we go, I'm pushing, I'm working really hard to get God to smile at me. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. And it could be, because I was one. Maybe you are a person who could be best described as a religious person. Not a righteous person, because the only righteousness God will ever allow any human to have is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. You might be religious, but not righteous. You may be moral and sincere, But I want to ask you this. Are you saved? Are you saved? Now, if you go, well, I've been baptized. You know now it's the wrong answer. If you go, well, I go to Calvary. Sorry. God won't check. Oh, you went to Calvary. Well, come on in. Are you a saved individual? Do you know Jesus personally? Do you worship him in the spirit as opposed to the flesh? Is your approach the approach of the gospel? Do you trust Jesus alone? I hope so. I pray so. If not, why not? Why not now just say, yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm to stop pushing this car. 
I'm giving Jesus the keys. I'm going to hop in the back seat. I'm going to let him take over. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for such clear instruction from Paul in just three verses to write to a fledgling group who was experiencing the enormous pull and pressure not only of the world, but of people attaching themselves to the Christian congregation who are pushing the agenda of works or Judaism or religion. And so that joy must be guarded. Lord, I pray as we discover who we are really called to be, the true circumcision, the true ones who don't trust the flesh but in the Spirit. We brag about what Jesus has done, not about what we have done. But Lord, I I do want to pray for anyone who might be here among us. They haven't really tasted of that yet. They've come close. They've come here. They've heard maybe many, many messages. But it doesn't define them. It's not their personal experience. They haven't yet surrendered honestly to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to the claim, your claim on their lives through the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. They're trusting in Jesus plus their religion. They're trusting in Jesus plus their ritual. They're trusting in Jesus plus their works. They are similarly caught in the same vortex that the early church was caught in in Jerusalem and in Philippi. So, Lord, I pray they'd be free of that and trust in Christ alone and breathe a sigh of relief because sin is forgiven and nothing is held against them in the annals of heaven. With our heads bowed, if you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation personally, you've never personally done it, your parents may have done it, I see people all the time who are drugged to church. Their parents make them go. They don't want to be here. They'd rather sleep through the service or play Pokemon through the service, but they want to get out of here. Or their wives make them come, or they do it because their relatives want to go. So what about you? Have you trusted personally in Jesus? And if not, why not? And why not do it today? Why not just simply say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ and make this real, make Him real to me. I'm going to receive Him as my Lord and Savior. I want to make sure that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I want to make sure that my name is written in God's book of life. If you want that certainty, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, my eyes are open, I want you to raise your hand so I can see and acknowledge that decision. You raise it up, keep it up for just a moment so I can see you. God bless you, sir, right in the middle, right down that aisle. Anybody else? Raise your hand up, please. Right over here on the left. Several of you, one, two, three, four of you, right up here in the front. Yes, ma'am. Right there in the middle. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for that. Right there, a couple more. Anyone else? Raise your hand up, please. Right over here to my right. Thank you. If you're in the balcony, anyone up up there? Raise your hand up. It's a transaction between you and God alone. Family room? Make that decision. God bless you and you. Yes. If you're outside, out by the uh, amphitheater, out by the fountain, there's pastors out there. Just raise your hand up. If you're outside and you hear this, if you're in the uh, 
Uh, Overflow next door, the hub. Raise your hand. A pastor will see you there. Father, I now just pray for each one who has raised that hand. I pray, Lord, that there would be such relief in their spirit as they put feet to their faith and make a prayer of commitment to Christ only to discover Jesus is waiting there all along to forgive them and wipe the slate clean and receive them into his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, please. We're going to close with a song, and as we close with a song, I saw several hands go up. I'm going to ask you to do one final thing. If you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you now to get up from where you are standing, find the nearest aisle, and walk right up here to the front, where I'm going to meet you and lead you in just a moment in a prayer to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you raise your hand, please come forward. We're not doing this to embarrass you. As you can hear, we're doing this to encourage you, to celebrate with you. Jesus called people publicly in the New Testament. He called people in front of other people and said, come and follow me. So get up, come, walk forward. If you're in the family room, walk through that door. Go through the hallway and stand right up here. We'll give you just a moment. This is the most important time of the service. Please be praying for those people making this decision. If you didn't raise your hand or I didn't see you, it doesn't matter. Just come right now. Come to Christ. Be forgiven. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your religion. They can't help you. Trust in Jesus. He will help you. He will help you. He will save you. We'll give it just another moment. You might be in the middle of a row. You might be in the back. You've seen this before. You've watched this before, but that's all you've done. You've watched this. Now you come. You be a part of it. Make it your personal experience. Those of you who have come, there's a lot of you. I'm going to squeeze right in here, right here. Can I do that? Don't feel uncomfortable. It's only me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you who have come in a prayer. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. And I'd like you to say it out loud after me. You know, sort of like at a wedding, they share vows out loud. So we're all witnessing this, this transaction. So pray these words from your heart. Say them to the Lord as you give him your life. You ready? Say, Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. That he died on a cross for me. That he shed his blood for my sins. That he rose again from the dead. I turn from my sin. I repent of it. I turn to Jesus as my Savior. Help me to live for Him as my Lord. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. As believers, we have every reason to be joyful because of Jesus Christ and his love for us. Did this message encourage you to keep your joy intact? We'd love to hear about it. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And just a reminder, you can give financially to this work at calvaryabq.org. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.